Well, we have been uh, preaching through Romans, as you know, and uh, the passage we have in front of us today is, is um, there's not a lot of humor in it, okay? There's not a lot of humor in it. I don't have a lot of funny, funny stories and, and cute things about my two daughters, which I like to include in my sermons, but today's passage does not lend itself towards that. It's a serious word from God to us, and we need to hear it, okay? We need to hear it. So if you have a Bible, you can turn uh, to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, and what uh, I believe you saw last week in the, uh, in, the, in the sermon was that God is a God who, in his judgments, is pure and holy, and Paul in Romans 2 is saying to those of you who are passing judgment on other people, you need to realize that for every finger you're pointing at other people, you got three pointing back at you, okay? And that even a Jew who may think, I have sort of this superiority because, you know, we're God's chosen race. We have the Torah, the Old Testament law. Even, even the Jews as well come under the condemnation of God. Paul is writing to this church at Rome, and you may remember that in the introduction we talked about how uh, there at the church at Rome, they were Jews and Gentiles, but the emperor of Rome kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so all of a sudden, that church became purely Gentile church. And by the way, last Sunday I was talking about Jews and Gentiles, and somebody, I can't remember who, might have been Jennifer, said, not everybody knows what a Gentile is. So maybe just to make it clear, in Bible language, a Gentile is anybody who is not a Jew, Okay. A, non, a non-son or daughter of Abraham would be considered a Gentile. And so uh, after, after, five years after all the Jews were kicked out of Rome, they were allowed back in. And so Jews flowed back into the city of Rome, which was the main capital city of the day, and including Jewish Christians who came back to that church at Rome. And all of a sudden you have now, once again, this ethnically and religiously diverse, I should say religiously, but mostly ethnically diverse church. Might I say perhaps somewhat like we have even here this morning here at our Gary campus. That kind of ethnic diversity which is beautiful and wonderful in a sort of mosaic way, but also, as, as you know, can create cultural uh, differences and cultural expectations. And you have all of that. That's going on there in the church at Rome. So Romans addresses this, these, some of these tensions that were unique to that church at Rome, specifically between the Jews and the Gentiles. And basically what he's going to say is that the Jews and the Gentiles, they all need the grace of God. Don't we all here today as well? Okay? Amen. Which brings us to verse 11 of chapter 2. And it's a very short little verse. Here's what it says. For God shows no partiality. For God shows no partiality. Here is our starting point, and it is about God. He shows no partiality. This is one of these interesting Greek words, and in, 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 in the Greek language, if you want to add meaning to something, you're, you're, it's like a train set. Some of you maybe had a train set growing up where you can, add, you can add cars to the front and you can add cars to the back. That's what these Greek words do. And so you end up with these amazingly long compound words. But they're there to give a sense of meaning. And this is one of them. It literally means this about God. He 
does not accept a face. That's the word. He does not accept a face. It's translated, shows no partiality. But what it means is, is that God is completely unbiased. He is completely unprejudiced. He is completely impartial. There is nothing about the, 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 any human being exteriorly that matters to him. It doesn't sway him somehow to show favoritism to anybody. And these words actually show the difficulty that we have with understanding God. Because there, we've never known anybody like this, right? We have to, in fact, to describe what he's like, we have to pick a word that we're familiar with and say he's not that way. So we take a word like biased and we say God is unbiased. We take a word like prejudiced and we say God is unprejudiced. We take a word like, imp- like partial and we say God is impartial. We have to, all we can do is say he's not like what we all know because we know prejudiced people, partial people, and biased people. God is not like any of those. We've never known anybody like this. Everybody we know is partial, biased, and prejudiced towards people. We all are, we ex- we're people who accept a face, especially if that face is somebody that is from our family or is from our tribe, is from our village, is from our group, ethnic or otherwise. We tend to show deference to people like that. And of course, our highest bias is self-bias. The face we love more than any other face is our own face. And that's why you were looking in the mirror this morning before you came to church today. At least some of you, this boy right here in the second row, I talked to him already about his hair. He's nine and he's got gray hair. Great hair, not gray hair, great hair. We love our own face. We're biased towards our own face. We love ourselves. And the world largely works on this, doesn't it? I mean, in Washington, D.C., we got lobbyists and special interest people who are trying to sway politicians to go the direction that they want, maybe giving them money so that they will go the direction that they want. And those politicians have constituencies that they are swayed by. Maybe it's because they give them money. Certainly, they give them votes. And the whole system is based upon a kind of accepting of a face, a respecting of people because of what you have and what you can do for me. And I scratch your back and you scratch my back. That's the way that the world around us works. But to realize that God doesn't need anybody's money. God doesn't need anybody's vote. God doesn't need anybody to scratch his back. Why? Because he is completely impartial. He is completely unbiased. He shows no partiality to anyone. He needs nobody's power. He needs nobody's importance. He needs nobody's standing. Nobody can do anything for God. Not that he needs. He's God. He cannot be lobbied. He needs no payback. He cannot be won by persuasive speech. He is not beholding to any human category of importance. Why does this matter? Well, listen to what now the Bible says. For all, this is verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse 
or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. May God bless his holy word to us today. Why should you care today? That last phrase right there says why all of us should care. What is coming? There is coming a day of reckoning when God will judge all of us. And by the way, notice that he will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Not our highlight reel, but our low light reel. Because our secrets are the things that we don't want anybody to know about. And we'll get to that more here in just a moment. Well, if I'm going to be judged by God, if, there's a, if there is a, a reckoning day, then I want to know what the standard is. Like, what do I got to do? Like, how do I, what do I got to do to try to have that day be a positive day? Well, notice what he begins in verse 12 by saying is that we are going to be judged according to the light of truth or the light of the gospel, the, 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 the light of Jesus that we have received. Again, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now that sounds a little confusing. It just means this. He's describing two kinds of people. Those that are without the law would be Gentiles. Those that are under the law would be Jews. Why are they under the law? Because at Mount Sinai, after God brought them out of Egypt, God gave them the law. The Ten Commandments and many other things. They had it written in stone. Did you see the movie? bad when the preacher's got to refer to the movie, right? <laughs> Just in case you haven't been reading your Bibles, maybe you saw the movie. God gave them in stone his law. And so the Jews, therefore, are under the law. But the Gentiles didn't get that. Okay, so they are, they are, they are without the law. So he's describing two large groups of people. But we notice here that all of us have a law. Now, you might say, I'm not a Jew, and I don't, know, I don't know the Old Testament law. Well, that doesn't mean that you're without excuse. Why? Because Romans 1 tells us that God has placed within this creation, in the grandeur of this creation, in the, in the sunsets and in the sunrise, in the, in the bullfrogs and in the butterflies, God has built into this creation sufficient evidence of what he is like that men are without excuse, Romans 1. Nobody is going to be able to stand before God and say, God, I never knew the truth. God's going to say, I was talking to you every single day in the sky and the clouds and all the other things that are beautiful in this world. He was speaking to each one of us so much about him that there's nobody that can say, I am without excuse. We are all condemned. We are all under a kind of law. Even the Gentiles, without the Old Testament law, still sinned. Now they didn't sin as much against knowledge of God as the Jews because they had this revelation, but we still sin. And notice verse 12 says that we both in the end perish. Jews and Gentiles both under the law of God perish. And in chapter 2, Paul here is addressing Jews who think, that's right, those Gentiles, they are going to perish. They have sinned against God, those Gentiles, but we're good. We're okay. Why? Because we have the Old Testament law. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. My ethnicity and my sort of religion means that I don't have to fear the judgment of God someday. 
Always got groups of people that say we're good and everybody else is bad, right? We're, the in, we're in with God, but everybody else is out with God. No, no. Jews and Gentiles both perish, okay? Both perish. The Jews with the law, the Gentiles with a different law, but in the end we're all condemned as sinners. And God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't accept a face. He is absolutely impartial. He cannot be swayed, persuaded, lobbied. It doesn't matter. So Paul wants us to realize that the judgment that we are going to face, this God that we stand before, is, not, is unlike anybody that we've ever known in our whole life. He is absolutely without bias. He does not look at the face. He is no acceptor of the face, even if it's a Jewish face. He doesn't care. Why? Because God doesn't look at the face. God looks at the heart. God doesn't look at the skin. God looks at the heart. Okay? And the God who is looking at the heart is completely unprejudiced, impartial, unbiased. Amen. But kind of like, uh-oh. Right? I appreciate the encouragement I'm getting from the audience today on the thought that God is impartial, but it is actually a terrifying thought. Terrifying. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now that may sound confusing to you because if you read the Bible, you, there's a lot about how we cannot justify ourselves. That justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But here Paul is addressing again these Jews who think, I'm good. We've got the law. I'm the right ethnicity. I'm, I'm good with God. I don't have to fear the reckoning day of God. Really? Paul says, just because you hear the law, it doesn't mean that you're justified before God. You can go to church all that you want and hear every sermon. You can go to one and quote all the verses. You can read your Bible every single day. Having God's revelation doesn't save you. It is not the hearers of the law who will be justified. It is the doers of the law that will be justified. Now again, I appreciate the encouragement, but if you heard what I just said, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Which is easier, hearing the law or doing it? <laughs> easier to hear it. Much harder to do it. And even if God is saying here, Paul is saying here, that we, have to, we can be justified by doing the law, that itself is not an encouragement. Because it sounds like Paul is actually suggesting there's an alternative way to be made right before God other than Jesus. You mean by obeying the law of God I can earn my way to heaven? Paul is theoretically suggesting this is a possibility. But realize, if you're going to earn your way to God, what you have to do. You have to obey the law sufficiently to be justified before a holy God who is no acceptor of the face. But we can't do that. You say, oh, I want to try. Okay, well, here's what trying would look like. You have to obey perfectly your entire life every external requirement of the law. External requirement. Like what? Well, if you, if you talk to somebody and you say, hey, are you going to heaven? 
A lot of people say, I think I'm going to heaven. Well, why are you going to heaven? And what they immediately say is, because I have never, help me out, murdered somebody. I'm going to heaven because I have never, help me out now, well, that counts too, robbed a bank or other financial institution of note. In other words, people, they, they pick like the big capital sin. That we know anybody does that, they're going to hell. But I, myself, have never done the big capital thing. I've never murdered anybody. I've never done this. I've never done that. I must be, I must be going to heaven because I've not done this thing. But even the Ten Commandments creates problems. Number five, honor your father and mother. How'd that go for you when you were two? <laughs> Much less 20. You, will, you shall not covet your neighbor's anything. He's got a fancy new car he's driving over there. His yard looks better than my yard. Got some new clothes I see flashing over there. Is that digital or is that direct TV he's got over there now? No, no. Mm -hmm. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament law. We have enough trouble with the top 10, the big 10, right? Much less all the rest. But okay, we're going to earn our way to God. We're going to justify ourselves before God. I have to obey every external requirement of the law perfectly my entire life. But it's not just that. We have to obey the law's internal requirements. Never an idol. Never anything in my life that I somehow treasured above God. Never a covet. Never irreverent about God's name in any way. And this, of course, is what the Jews missed and Jesus highlighted in his famous Sermon on the Mount, where basically his Sermon on the Mount is taking those Old Testament exterior law requirements and saying, no, no, this is a matter of the heart. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You say you shall not murder somebody, but I say if you are angry, angry with your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. So never angry ever with anybody you say that adultery is wrong. I say to you, if a man looks after a woman lustfully, he is committing mental adultery with her in his heart. Never do that one time. That Sermon on the Mount, you know, people are like, man, it'd be awesome to have heard the Sermon on the Mount. Not if you were listening. <laughs> I think if you were listening, he got to the end and everybody was like, uh-oh, we are all in serious trouble. you got to obey all the internal requirements perfectly. But it goes beyond that. Not just not doing what you shouldn't do. The law requires that every single time you have to do what it also requires. That positive 
requirement. This includes loving God with all your heart every moment of your entire life. This includes loving your neighbor as yourself every single time. And if you remember, a man came to Jesus and said, what do I got to do to be justified before God? This was the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan as an example. If I got the story right there. An example of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but actually, we only have one service. Maybe I do. Um, <laughs> so I'll just say part of it. But if you know the story, here's, here's this Here's this uh, Jew beaten up alongside the road. And the religious, two religious leaders come see him and they walk around on the other side. Up comes a Samaritan. Talk about ethnic hostility. Study the hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritan sees the, the Jew beat up alongside the road. And it says that his heart splank nizomite is the word, filled with compassion for him. And he reaches down and he binds his wounds and he wipes them off and he cleans them up and he puts them on whatever his mode of transportation was. We don't know for sure. Maybe a donkey, something like that. Carries him to the next town. Puts him up in a hotel. Gives the innkeeper a blank check and, and, and stays with the man all night long washing his wounds and caring for him. And in the next morning he says to the innkeeper, I got to leave, but I'm coming back. I'm covering whatever costs there are. Jesus says, that's what it means to love your neighbor. So if you're going to justify yourself before God, you've got to do that with every single person you ever meet your entire life perfectly. Then you've loved your neighbor. And by the way, that's one of the 613 commands. And then... We cannot obey the law's comprehensive requirement of perfection. Here's James. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So, friend, can you be justified? Can, can you earn your way to God through the law? If you do it perfectly in action and attitude all of your life, without failure, in any motive, always done in love to God and neighbor, perfectly every second of every day for your entire life, congratulations, you are justified before God. And good luck with that. So when Paul says here that the doers of the law will be justified in verse 13, he is not giving the Jews an alternative righteousness. He has shown them their failure and their just condemnation before God. One commentator says it this way. Let us be perfectly clear about this. The sinful Gentile and the sinful Jew will go together to perdition, which is a fancy word for hell. But here seems to be the clear teaching that the punishment and the suffering of the Jew for his sins will be greater than that of the Gentile. And it is perfectly just and, and equitable. The Jew has had the advantage, the greater opportunity, the greater light, and therefore he is judged according to the light which he had. Now before you look at that and say, that sounds like something, you know, smart theologian philosophers talk about, but it has no relevance to me whatsoever, my dear friend, if we are judged according to the light that we have received, what accountability do you have for the light that you have by simply being in this service 
today. Do you realize what has been done today in, in the songs and in just this message so far puts you in a position of spiritual privilege ahead of every Old Testament saint? You have more light than Abraham and Moses and David and Joseph and Jeremiah and Daniel and all the other heroes of the story. You are in a more privileged position because you know the name of Jesus. You know something about a cross. You know something about him being the son of God. You know maybe hopefully something about faith, salvation coming by faith in him. They didn't have any of that. But you, my friend, do right down to the child here in the room today. Which is great, but places us in a higher level of accountability. If an Old Testament Jew is judged by Old Testament light, what happens to us who reject Jesus by New Testament I was going to say light, but like floodlight. Who has the advantage? On judgment day, apart from the grace of God, who would you rather be? Abraham or you? Apart from the grace of God, who would you rather be? Moses or you? And what I'm here to tell you right now is that we will be judged by the light that we have received in our life. And it would be better to have never heard anything about Jesus. Better to be the aborigine in Australia, who all he had was, was bullfrogs and butterflies, than to be a human being who hears the truth about Jesus in the gospel and rejects it. Because there is a day of reckoning, and there is a God who does not accept anybody's face, And who will judge us and ultimately punish us by the privilege of the light that we have received in our life. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. What Paul is saying here is, That when God made us as image bearers, when God made us as human beings, he did something unique in us that he didn't do in any of the animals. He wrote a moral code and an immoral awareness into what it means to be a human being. And that is why no matter where you go in the world, there is a certain sense that everybody has that something is right and something is wrong. No matter where you go in the world, in any society, if you unjustly take somebody else's life, there's a sense in that society and in that heart that this is not the way it should be. No matter where you go, if you sleep with somebody else's wife, there is a sense that this is not right. And where did that sense come from? That came from God. He put a code in us, like your smartphone. There's a coding that is in that smartphone, a basic source coding that kind of operates behind the scenes all the time. 
And this is why, by the way, non-Christians will do incredibly noble and good things. Even though they don't know the name of Jesus, they will still do incredibly noble things. Non-Christians can have very loving marriages. Non-Christians can express incredible sacrifice for one another. I'm a, I love uh, war history, and you read accounts on the battlefield of, of that, that brotherhood, that band of brothers, and what, what one man will do for another. Fallen on grenades is one example. Incredible self-sacrifice done in a genuine love. Where does that come from? Gentiles will strive to end human suffering. Everybody has a sense that human trafficking isn't the way that it should be. Non-Christians will give very philanthropically to causes. This building was built by, I would say, a lot of non-Christians who had a heart for children in the city of Gary. And they built it really well, by the way. This and so many other examples. By nature, Gentiles will sometimes do what the law requires. Paul goes on to say that God not only wrote a moral code in our heart, but also put a moral conscience there. Okay, We have this testimony to the truth. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, verse 15, while their conscience also bears witness. So God places a code and a conscience. And the code is that sense of right and wrong, and that conscience is like the dash on the car, right? When something's not right on the inside, here comes on the you know, low oil or, or check engine light comes on. Something's not right inside. And we as human beings, when we go against that basic moral code, there is something inside of us that begins to flash and say that what we have done is not right. Something's not right. It feels like the best word I have is shame. Do we know that sense of shame? I think we all do as human beings. When I've done something I shouldn't have done. That's our conscience at work. God placed it there. And Paul points, Paul's point here is that the Gentiles are judged by that unwritten law. And the end result is that Jews who have the written law and Gentiles who have an unwritten law both are condemned by God because they are acting unrighteously against the standard that God is. And God rightly and justly condemns both forever. So again, why should we care? Verse 15. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This day of reckoning, the day of judgment, this moment when each one of us will stand before God is a day that is most certainly coming. And on that day, it's not going to be like the, the pie contest at the Lake County Fair where people that are really good at making pies make the very best pie that they can possibly make and they submit it to the judge for an evaluation. In other words, that is, that is a judgment day of the very best of the very best. No, it's not going to be like that. 
The text here says that God's not going to look at all of the greatest things that we ever did, all the things that we love to talk about and post on Facebook and brag about to our friends that we did. Look at me. I'm being so godly. I'm being so righteous. What an amazing person I am. No, it's not those things. God is going to evaluate the secrets of our hearts. These are not the highlights. These are the lowlights of our story. These are the things that we don't want anybody to know. And we, we don't want it to get out to anybody. And maybe as I'm talking about this, those things in your life are coming to your mind. Whatever's coming to your mind, yeah, it's that thing. Okay? It's that thing. Now, I talk to people, and I, I've, I've heard this before, that they're, they're, and I don't know why this is, but there's sort of this sense in the modern understanding of Judgment Day where there's like the jumbotron, Right? There's going to be a big screen, and everybody's going to be standing there, and, and your life is going to go on the screen, and you hear from people, they're like, oh boy, I, I dread the day when this event in my life or this thing that I did is going to be shown on the screen. Why? Because my mom is going to know about it. I'm going to die of embarrassment when this part of my life is shown, and my grandma, who prayed for me every day, is going to see it and know about it. And my dear friend, I want to tell you right now, the least of your concerns is whether your grandma knows about it or your mama knows about it because you are standing before Almighty God. You are going to be terrified that He knows about it and is going to judge completely, impartially, your life. And if that is not a terror, it's not just judgment that is a terror, but what comes after judgment, which is eternal punishment and damnation for sinners. And we find in that moment where all of this is heading, which is Romans 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one. If you're a Jew today, great. You're a sinner. If you're a Gentile today, congratulations. You're a sinner too. That the Jews perish and the Gentiles perish. Because in the end, we're not judged as Jew or Gentile. We are judged as sinners before a holy God. You say, well, I'm going to try harder. Okay, good luck with that. You have to live perfect. And you've probably already blown it a million times. So have I, by the way. When we began Romans, we noted that Paul's whole explanation of the gospel, this best, clearest explanation of the gospel of Jesus, which is Romans, that Paul does not begin with the love of God. Paul does not begin with the mercy of God. Paul does not begin with how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Paul's starting point is the wrath of God, the judgment of God. A realistic perspective of all of our standings, no matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile before God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. And the reason that he does this is that we understand how bad the, the bad news is so that we can realize how good the good news is. 
Okay? How good the good news is. And this is where this is going. It's preparing our hearts for chapter 3 where Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Why is that wonderful? Because no matter if you're a Gentile who all you had was the butterflies and the bullfrogs and the sunsets and the sunrises, all you had was that you stand as judged before God rightly as a sinner. Oh, you're a Jew, congratulations, you've known, the, you've known the law your entire life. To be a Jewish boy was to grow up memorizing the Old Testament. They were required to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They called it a wanna. To be a Jew was to know the law. You've heard it your entire life. Congratulations. It condemns you. It does not save you. So by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 21, if you're understanding what Paul's saying, you've come to the conclusion, there's no hope for me. A righteous God is going to judge me as being a sinner. It doesn't matter who I am, doesn't matter my skin color, doesn't matter my ethnicity, doesn't matter my faith background. It doesn't matter how good I was, bad I was, how much I tried. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be judged as being guilty before God. And then the gospel of Jesus dying for me and providing for me a righteousness that I could never provide for myself becomes the most wonderful thing I could ever imagine. How do I sign up for that? Where do I go? What do I do? My secrets and my sins are great. Well, there is a Savior for those secret sins of your heart. There is one who died for the secret sins and the known sins, the big sins and the small sins, died for every sin in your life. His name is Jesus, and he died on the cross so that there could be a righteousness a right judgment made for me that doesn't come from me trying to earn it by obeying the law, which I could never do. It comes purely by faith so that God is glorified as Savior. I receive salvation. I don't earn it. It is given to me as a gift so that no man can boast. And you say, well, what do I got to do? Believe. Don't leave here and say, I'm going to try harder. Believe in Christ and his work on the cross for you. And God, who is love and wants to save us, extends this forgiveness and this right standing before him for all who trust and believe in Christ. Give up trying to earn it. Receive it as a gift. Believe in him now. Now i got a special burden on this point. This is, and with this, uh, this, this last part of the message. I have a special burden. I pastored in Northwest Indiana for over 20 years now. And I've learned a few things about our community. And one of the things that I've learned about in our community is we got a lot of people who grew up hearing the gospel. Lots of people who grew up going to church, doing, you know, vacation Bible school, doing this, doing that. 
exposed to the light of the gospel. Now, it might have been an unhealthy family. It could have been an unhealthy church. There's a lot of reasons that people say, oh, yeah, my daddy was a deacon. I grew up doing this and all that. I don't follow Jesus now because of something that happened to me. Okay, you know what? In the end, you're dead. You're dead. And you're going to stand before God. And what your grandpa said to you one time that is your excuse for why you've never trusted in Jesus isn't going to matter in that moment. It's not going to matter. There will be no excuses on Judgment Day. And there are so many in this community who know the truth about Jesus and yet to this point in their life have never trusted in Jesus. And my dear acquainted with the gospel friend, I wonder if you realize what you are risking as you trifle with the gospel and wait for some day in your life when you are going to get serious about spiritual things. Your hero is the thief on the cross, and you think to yourself, well, you know, someday when I'm older, I'm going to really get serious about this, and in the end, I think I'm going to trust in Christ. Really? Really? Do you realize what you are risking? Because you stand in a position of highest accountability. You know Jesus. You know the way of salvation. And yet to this point, you haven't trusted in him. Which means that you step into eternity having known the, you have the ultimate light and the ultimate privilege. You will have the ultimate accountability. The, did you know the Bible teaches degrees of punishment in hell? Now, hell's hell, okay? But there are worse punishments forever for some. And the worst place and punishment is not for the person who necessarily did the worst things. The worst place is for the person who knew the truth about Jesus and rejected him. Do you remember what, do you remember what Jesus said to Judas? It would be better for you to have never been born than for you to to betray the Son of God. The worst place in hell, who's there? People want to say, oh, Hitler's there. Maybe. Stalin's there. Maybe. We know one person who's there. Judas Iscariot is there. And I wonder if you, not yet a follower of Jesus, are by default actually a follower of Judas. Who had all of the privilege, living with Jesus as one of his disciples, all of the light of hearing his teaching, all of the joy of watching Lazarus come out of that grave, All of the light, and yet he betrays Jesus and rejects him. Are you a follower of Jesus or a follower of Judas? Because I'm here to tell you right now, you do not want to be a follower of Judas on Judgment Day. Or forever. And you're like, well, okay, that's great. Is it time for lunch? Let's get out of here. Really? Really? Listen. 
you're going to get on a road out here, and you're going to be driving feet from oncoming traffic, half of whom are texting. You are assuming that that heart inside of you is just going to continue to work, and you're going to have time at some point to get serious about Jesus Christ. You're assuming that those ventricles in your brain are going to remain unclogged and that you're going to remain conscious until some moment when you know that you're going to die. And none of that is for sure. But what is for sure is that you right now, by being in this service today, if you never knew anything else by being in this service today, are elevated in the eyes of God to the highest place of accountability forever. Well, Pastor Steve, what should I do? Trust in Christ? Believe in him now? Why wait until some magical day that may never come to stand before God on a day that is most certainly coming and to step into an eternity apart from the grace of God and under the wrath of God forever, you risk too much. Paul's goal is that they would believe. Quit trying to save themselves. Put their trust wholly in Christ and his work on the cross. And that same message is true today. My dear friend, what are you waiting for? Why trifle? Why risk? Why walk on the ledge of the tallest skyscraper? Why put so much at risk forever? When Christ offers to, tr to, to save all who believe and trust in him, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. I urge you today to call on him, to confess your sins to God, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, and to become a follower of Jesus. This is the path to life forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish forever, but will have everlasting life. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. All praise be to him. Amen. Amen.